going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Israel Johannes. In this episode, we're going to do things backwards. The last thing I'll talk about is the recap for the Mavs, Pelicans, and Thunder. But the first thing I want to talk about is actually the NBA's 65-game rule because it's been a hotly contested debate, a topic of contention for the last week, especially due to injuries to Joel Embiid and Tyrese Halliburton. So we'll break down the effects of that rule. And then we'll also look at the MVP race since we're closing in on 50 games through the season for most teams, if not all of them at this point. And then, of course, that last segment will be the recap of the three teams that I normally cover. So first things first, what is the NBA's 65-game rule? Essentially, players must play a minimum of 65 games to be eligible for end-of-season awards such as Most Valuable Player, Most Improved Player, Rookie of the Year, All-NBA, etc., etc. Why was this rule implemented? The 65-game rule tried to kill two birds with one stone, load management and then the end-of-season awards. Load management, however, had already been addressed by the player participation policy in September of last year. In layman's terms, it would fine teams if a player who's not on the injury report for a nationally televised game is suddenly a late scratch for something other than, let's say, somebody hurt their ankle in warm-ups. Right? Outside of situations like that, normally a team would get fined if there were no underlying injury and then the player just ended up resting and we didn't know about it. Now... There's more to this player participation policy. It replaced the player resting policy, which was implemented six seasons ago, ahead of the 2017-2018 season. And it's primarily targeting star players. And how this rule defines a star player is a player who, quote, in any of the prior three seasons was selected to an all-NBA team or an all NBA All-Star team. So marquee players, the people that the players that fans spend their hard-earned money for, right? So according to this NBA official release, under the policy, unless a team demonstrates an approved reason for a star player not to participate in a game, then, among other things, the team must manage its roster to ensure that no more than one star player is unavailable for the same game, ensure that star players are available for all national television and NBA in-season tournament games, maintain a balance between the number of one-game absences for a star player in home and road games, refrain from any long-term, quote, shutdowns in which a star player stops playing games, and if resting a healthy player, ensure that the player is present at the games and visible to fans. So this policy, again, it includes exceptions for injuries, personal reasons, pre-approved back-to-back restrictions based on a player's age, career workload, or serious injury history. That is also in the official release. Tie that together with the effect of adding the bonus of end-of-season awards, such as MVP and All-NBA, it's enticing the players to opt to play instead of rest. 
that creates this notion, though, that the players are the ones who are responsible for the resting. And I'll get to that in a second. Now, what evidence supports the NBA's argument? They had a load management study that was released in January of 2024. January 11th, 2024 was when we got this study, or at least when we got the results of the study. It found no link between load managed players and a decreased risk of injury. So this idea that if you rest your stars for almost half the season, they'll be healthy for the playoffs, that was found to be untrue. And it was the result of independent research on 10 years of NBA data. So with the definition of star player games, or star players, excuse me, the games missed per season by those star players by decade in the 1980s was an average of 10.4 games missed. In the 90s, it rose ever so slightly to 10.6. In the 2000s, it jumped to 13.9. In the 2010s, when player empowerment started to move a little bit more, 17 and a half. This decade, it's already at 23.9. So that number has continually gone up over the last four and a half decades. And it can create a problem, as I said, for the fans who are paying their hard-earned money to see these players play on the court. It also happens to affect broadcasting, right? So now I'm going to get you a little bit inside the control room and how these things work whenever we run into situations like load management. How does load management affect broadcasting? On the producer level, they have to construct a show to market star players because that's what draws in the most viewership. If you're going to watch the Mavericks, you want to watch Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving play against whoever the other team stars are. When stars don't play, contingencies are in place, but the time needed to pre-produce them may be lost. It might not be there. And it depends on how early we find out about these injuries. So whenever it comes up to game time, when we find out, okay, these are going to be game time decisions, we have to lean on insiders such as Mark Stein, sideline reporters like Leslie McCaslin and Jeff Skin Wade. Without them or without some official reporter telling media, this player is not going to play, they're not suiting up based on the information we just got 20 minutes before tip-off or something like that, then we're basically hanging back and waiting for that call. We're waiting for that adjustment. On the graphics side, graphics coordinators, operators, APs, have to adjust graphics in real time to accommodate these changes. And they can... On the graphics side, it's a lot easier than on EVS, which I'll explain in a minute, but... When it's a sponsored or pre-produced element and we already have a copy of it somewhere in an EVS bank that we can just roll out, it becomes more difficult because you can't change what's been taped, what's been pre-produced. So you have to just do it live. And so that's another thing to think about because you don't want to be incorrect just because you had done the work early. So... In my case, last season when we did Mavs all the way through, even home and road, we had this feature called Up to the Minute, and it was presented by Baylor Scott and White Health. So we would normally use that graphic to display injury reports for the Mavs and or the opponents. 
most of the time, because of last season's health issues, it would be about the Mavericks. And there were multiple times where, not necessarily about load management, but just about injuries, we wouldn't find out until day of or even 20 minutes before. Sometimes we wouldn't find out until 10 to 15 minutes before. And that element has to make it into the show or else we don't get paid. So, one, the, the producer can circumnavigate that situation. Like they, they can go around that situation by putting the sponsor somewhere else so that it doesn't get tied to something that we might not know about until tip-off. That way we avoid that situation altogether. altogether. But um, it has come up multiple times where you know you see an injury and we're already halfway through the show. So generally we'll have it late in the show so that we can accommodate that. But more often than not, if, if an injury that to a star player is going to affect the show that late, you, you just gotta, you got you gotta roll with the punches. I mean, that's, that's broadcasting. And let's say it's a full screen and by that's pretty self-explanatory. It covers the whole screen. Certain templates don't allow you to change how many windows there are. So if I have a standard, what we call a forehead, so it provides four windows for four players, you can change the template through this template ID search in the Viz Trio system. And it, it will allow you to make your forehead a five head or a three head based on what you need, but you need to have a place to save that file to save that page and then adjust all of the text so that it fits in the right spot because it's not going to be the same and it's going to look weird if you just leave it alone. To avoid doing that, you can just make another version of it. Sometimes I do that for New Orleans where we have a possibility that one player from both teams may not play and so I'll just make multiple versions of it so I don't have to deal with all of the catch-up of trying to figure out who's playing and who's not. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. So you just have to, again, roll with the punches and figure out who's in, who's out as soon as you can. And then if it's sponsored, get it out there. If it's not, you just leave it up to the reporter at that point. On the EVS side, and EVS is a, is a form of replay, so we call them EVS operators. They're another form of, of an associate producer. They have to change up packages such as the rollout to accommodate these changes, right? So if you have Kyrie Irving or Zion Williamson and one or both of them are hurt, you can't use them in the rollout without the audience being like, wait a second, they're not playing. You just told us they're not playing. Or we just heard from the reporter, they're not playing. Why are they there? Sometimes if it's so late in the show, you kind of don't have, you may not have a choice, but most of the, most, if not every time the producers and the EBS operators are going to be prepared for that situation. They'll have a backup file just in case. It just means that they have to make two of them. It's not the end of the world, but they have to make two of them rather than one. And normally the rollout can be pre-produced with a graphic. So if there is one, with a graphic, we have to pre-produce both versions of it, and so it adds to the, to the pre-production time, cuts into lunch, dinner, whatever time it is. 
So there's a lot that goes into it planning wise so that when you execute, it's seamless. It, it doesn't hurt the show. Um, it doesn't throw a wrench in your plans. But if it were load management, right? Everything I've talked about up until this point is about injuries. If it's load management and we're finding out, oh, halfway through, halfway through our day, by the way, this player is resting just to rest. Well, then half, the, half of the video that's been cut might not work. Some of the graphics, uh, let's say if, if it's another full screen about that specific player's numbers, it would have to be used in a way where you would make the argument that the team, that person's, that player's team, is missing out on that production. That would be the way that you would frame it. Otherwise, you can't use it. And then you'd have to look at the other players and say, okay, who's going to step up? You, you basically have to think on the fly. On top of that, right, that's just the, that's the broadcasting side from the control room. When you're a viewer, the viewership goes down. Let's say you watch two, two marquee teams and then all of their stars just don't play. Are you going to watch that game? Realistically, no. You have better things to do with your time. Although it might be a great game, you, you won't be watching for the superstars because they're not playing. And so that lower viewership can hurt the revenue of the networks, whether they're national or local. So this rule, this 65-game rule, has been, the point of it was, again, to entice players to play and to address the load management situation that had started happening in the mid-2010s and even later with all of the contract disputes and, and so on and so forth. But the, to me, the number 65 causes a big problem. More so than other people in the media, more so than fans all across America and the world. And I'll do my best to explain why I feel this way. Right, so the first point about this specific number being the threshold for certain parameters, certain awards that can affect contracts and legacies and all that, right? The first point is that it creates objectivity for subjective awards that are voted on by media. Right, so for MVP, you're going to have media members. I, I think it's 100 media members who vote with first, second, third place, so on, with five votes as to, well, each one, each one of them has one, and they list their specific players in order as to who would win the MVP and who they would have at second and third and, and all that. It's a subjective award. We didn't need the 65-game number to determine whether or not a player was worthy of the MVP. Generally, if you did not play in that many games, you weren't going to win anyway because somebody else who's having a similarly great season but played more games will end up getting the award over you. So having 
a strict threshold, an arbitrary threshold, loses the nuance of the subjectivity. You no longer leave it into the into the minds of the voters. Instead, they're looking at it like, okay, this person can't be voted in because they don't have 65 games. Well, what if they what if they had a great season, the greatest season we've ever seen, and the person in second isn't even close, and the guy in first place has played 64 games? What is so special about that 18th game that was missed? Or the 18th game that the second player did not miss? Right? Like, where's the fringe? Why, why is there no nuance there? It, it's, it's too arbitrary for something that, that is so subjective, where the goalposts move year to year. It's not always the same reason why somebody wins MVP year after year. Okay, so that's part of my second point, that the voters used already used games played as a metric. What affects the games that are played and the games that are missed obviously would be because of injuries, but injuries not only play a factor, not every, in, not every injury is actually the same. And every body, every human body, reacts to injuries and heals from injuries differently. They're on different timetables. So a LeBron James can sprain his ankle and come back in five minutes. Joel Embiid may sprain an ankle and have to come back in a week and a half. It just depends on the body. So let's let's so let's look at this MVP case for Joel Embiid, right? Um, because this this hard threshold is at least for, for Embiid, he's already getting to the point where he's not going to be eligible, regardless of the rule, but. The person that we will talk about after him, Tyrese Halliburton, is the one who I think is getting the shortest end of the stick here. So in Joel Embiid's case for MVP, he'll most likely be ineligible for the award. And let's say, okay, he's got the meniscus tear right now. He gets surgery and he misses 27 games. When was the last time we saw an MVP? Missed 27 games. If you've been wondering that question and you haven't found the answer yet, I will tell you. The only NBA MVP to play fewer than 65 games in an 82-game season, so non-shortened, full 82-game season, is Bill Walton in 1978. Every other MVP has played 71 games in a, in a non-shortened season until Joel Embiid won with 66 games played last year. And, it, and by the way, if you're wondering, because I know there are some people out there who are, the 65-game rule had already been ratified before Joel Embiid even won the MVP. So it's not like they saw Joel's number at 66 and they said, okay, we'll make it 65. That's not how it happened. They put 65 in. It was part of negotiations. It was ratified. The season concluded. And by the second round, Joel Embiid won MVP through 66 games. 
that was the order of the timeline. All right. So it wasn't Embiid that, that factored into this number. It's just an arbitrary number. For Tyrese Halliburton, in his case, it's not about MVP or MIP. It's about all NBA. Why does all NBA matter? When you are in line for a max contract, in Tyrese Halliburton's case, he just signed in this past offseason, he just signed a max extension with the Indiana Pacers. And that max can turn into a super max if he's selected to an all-NBA team, whether it's first, second, or third team. With this new rule, if you miss more than 17 games, you will no longer be eligible for all-NBA. All right, so like I said, injuries are different. The timelines, the timetables are different. Certain injuries need longer time to heal, but if you have already been such a stout player who probably deserves the recognition anyway, what do the voters do in that case? And this arbitrary threshold is making things way more difficult. So Halliburton suffered a hamstring injury by slipping on the court into the splits. And as a martial artist, I know what it's like to do the splits when you're flexible and when you're not. That hurts. He missed 13 games this season, 10 of them due to the hamstring. So he had missed three games prior to this injury for other reasons, but it was like a one-off. It wasn't three in a row. Then Halliburton played, oh, this is the most important thing to recognize. Halliburton played 13 minutes and 29 seconds into the game where he, where he got injured. So it doesn't count as a game played. All right, so he's being penalized for the game in which he got injured because it happened so early in the game. Then he tried coming back after five games missed because, hello, you want to win All-NBA because your contract, your max contract, can be a super max. It's valued at about an extra $40 million. So yeah, you're going to want to play. A hamstring, however, can take anywhere from three to four weeks to heal. And if you retweak it, it takes another month just to heal. I know, because I've pulled a hamstring while active. And then I've retweaked it while active. And it took another month to heal. So then Halliburton played, he scored 21 points in 35 minutes played after that five game absence, retweaked the hamstring and then missed the next five games. That's why he's missed 10. All right. Now he's already missed 13. And in order for him to be eligible again for all NBA, as I've said now, Multiple times he has to keep playing. He can't miss another four games. So there's a minutes threshold to recognize the games played. You have to get to 20 minutes. If you get injured and you were within the 15 to 20 minute range, they can make an exception. But generally you have to be at the 20 minute mark. 
So he has he has a minutes restriction now. He hasn't played more than 22 minutes in each of his last four games. And across that stretch, Halliburton is scoring 14.8 points per game on 52.3% shooting, five assists per game, and only two turnovers per game. Indiana, however, has only gone one and three in that stretch, and they beat Charlotte on Sunday. So let's say Halliburton retweaks the hamstring again. He'll be out another week because you can't move. You can't play on a bad hamstring and expect to be 100%, especially if you're trying to make a postseason push. If you've got a nagging hamstring, it doesn't get better when you play on it. So it can set him back a few weeks to a month and force him to be ineligible for all NBA. Then if Halliburton misses out on all NBA, his max contract extension will not be eligible to become a super max extension. He'll lose out on $40 million. Those of us who see $40 million and go, oh, I'll never make that money, you might scoff at the fact that someone who's already going to get a $200 million extension doesn't happen to get another $40 million. That's not the essence of my argument here. The point is that you have an arbitrary number within a rule that's making you feel like you have to play injured so that you can meet this arbitrary threshold in order to be deserving of an award that voters already thought you were deserving of, even if you miss 20 games. And if we're looking at it through a regular person's lens, Guaranteed NBA contracts are kind of like workers' compensation, right? You're paid not to play, yada, 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 all that stuff, right? If you get injured on the job, and we know injuries are a part of sports because it's a physical demand, it's a demanding job. But even in industries where injuries can happen, Right? You can still get workers' compensation. You can still get paid because you got hurt and are unable to work. Before guaranteed contracts were a thing, when you got hurt, depending on your status, if you weren't high up on the roster, you probably got cut. Ask the NFL because those contracts are not guaranteed. Still, unless you're a quarterback. So you have, you have these guaranteed contracts in there for a reason. It's part of the CBA for a reason. But it's not like the players, and this is going to be my third point, it's not like the players are going to miss the games just to miss games. That, that to me, I think that notion bothers me, but I'm the type of person to attend as much as possible. Right, to put in as much effort as possible. And so, yeah, there may be a couple of guys out there who's like, you know what, I'll probably sit out this game. But way, way, way more often than not, and based on what athletes have said, these decisions where they sit come from team medical staffs. They don't come from the player, unless the player is saying, I don't 
feel ready to go, such as Kawhi Leonard with his quad. And that is a whole different situation. So if the team is determining when a player sits or plays, why is the player getting penalized for a team decision? That, to me, is what doesn't make sense. Right? That's part of everything that doesn't make sense with this rule. So, if, let's say, let's say a team determines that a player has to sit because of injury, for some reason, and then the player misses that threshold, according to the 65-game rule, the player can file a grievance. First of all, grievances are awkward, especially when you want to remain with the, with the franchise for a long period of time. But why, why does it have to be that bureaucratic when the issue was not about missing 17 versus 18 games? Right? Like, it doesn't have to be, oh, you missed 18 games, therefore you're ineligible. I only missed that 18th game because you told me to sit based on an injury, but I wanted to play. If that happens so late in the season, I mean, we we find out about a lot of the end of season awards within that first round of the playoffs. So there's not much time for that grievance to be heard. It's just a longer process and a less efficient. It's really not efficient at all. It's an inefficient process for something that could have been avoided, but we went with an arbitrary threshold. So players that want to win these awards may come back too soon, like Halliburton, and not be effective. Or they can risk serious injury again, like Joel Embiid, and not be healthy for the playoffs. And media everywhere keeps saying what matters most is the playoffs. So if I hear in April and in May, oh, you didn't get it done in the playoffs, you weren't healthy in the playoffs, the, these things happen in the playoffs, and it was because of a nagging injury from the regular season, we're going to have a big problem. We are going to have a big problem. You can't have somebody risking injury for certain awards for, let's say, this Supermax contract. It's not like he can be eligible for the Supermax as the contract is happening. Halliburton, I'm talking about. Once he's already in the contract, that's it. It can't be turned into a Supermax. So this is the only season that he can make it eligible for a Supermax. If he stays out there too long, hurts his hamstring again, misses more games, becomes ineligible, and then is on a max contract instead of a Supermax, and then Indiana makes the playoffs, and he's still ineffective because he has a hamstring injury that hasn't been healed fully because he was trying to play on it to satisfy the Supermax extension, the question will then be, oh, Tyrese Halliburton, why didn't you get your team through the playoffs? That's the reason why. That's the reason why. And then he'll miss more games. And as a marquee star, you're going to have a situation where you're like, oh, he's not available to play. Yeah. Whose fault is that now? Like, I can see where the players are griping with it. I can see how fans are griping about it. I can see how the media is griping about it. It's a multifaceted problem. But putting an arbitrary number is not the answer. Not in my opinion. 
We'll probably have this discussion way more often than we should. But for now, I'll leave it there, and let's transition to the MVP debate. The reason why? I want to understand why Luca is in sixth. That doesn't seem right to me either. That's coming up next. Let's get into the MVP debate within the NBA. I want to know why Luca's in sixth place. So, based on the MVP leaderboard on NBA.com, the most recent update on February 2nd, in first is Nikola Jokic, second, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Both of them rightfully deserve. They are playing outstanding this season. Third, Joel Embiid. Fourth, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Fifth, Jason Tatum. And then sixth, Luka Doncic. So I understand Jokic and SGA. Those are the top two for me as well. And I'll make a case for Jokic and for Shea right now. For Jokic, right, he leads the league with 15 triple doubles. Denver is 10 and 5 this season when he has a triple double. Averaging 26.3 points per game, 12.3 rebounds per game, 9.1 assists per game. That's the third highest points per game of his career, second highest rebounds and assists per game of his career. So his his numbers are elevated. Denver is looking to be a top four seed in the West. They are the defending champions. They look like they're primed for another title run, given everything else, all the powerhouses in the West right now. He's just playing at an elevated level where you thought he couldn't get better, and then he just happens to get better every single year. It's nonstop. He's very efficient from the floor. He, he's, he's, out, he's outstanding, right? When he needs to hit a three, he can do that too. But the way that he's dissecting defenses, using all the eyes around his head to make these sick passes we've n- never seen make, made from a center, He's going to be in that top three all the time. He's one of those dudes, right? Now, coming up on his heels is Shea Gildas-Alexander, and he has a strong case, too. He's the best player on the best and one of the most surprising teams in the West. However, in my opinion, he does more for the Thunder than, let's say, the guy in fifth place, Jason Tatum, does for the Celtics. Now, both of those two guys are the guys for those teams, right? It, those two are their superstars. Both teams are stacked. However, Boston gets more out of the supporting cast, whether or not Jason Tatum is on the floor. Definitely, definitely while he's on the floor, but they can succeed even if He's, he's gone down for some reason, or he's not playing for some reason, right? Shea Gilgis-Alexander, on the other hand, the Thunder have learned how to play without him, but the offense is predicated, is predicated on his ability to drive, his ability to collapse defenses. Defenses plan for him. With Boston, you have to plan for everybody. For SGA... He also has the most 30-point games this season with 37. The next most is Luka with 32. And as I'm recording this, 
They're currently playing Philadelphia. It's a blowout, and he does, he didn't have 20 points last I checked, but he's probably not going to get to 30. Even if he does, he's still at least four games behind Shea Gildas-Alexander. SGA has been playing at an MVP level all season long. It's just taken a while for people to notice, and because of the Thunder's rise to the top of the Western Conference, now we're starting to see, okay, SGA is not only the best player on the best team in the West, he's one of the most impactful players across the entire NBA. So for him, that's what elevates him into the top three. Joel Embiid, currently he's three because of the technicality that you could be eligible for MVP as long as you haven't missed 17 games. However, this left meniscus tear that now requires surgery is probably going to keep him out and under that threshold, and so he won't be on this list in a few weeks' time. So by process of elimination, no need to really worry about whether or not we talk about Joel Embiid. And let's say that, again, that 65-game rule was not there. If he only ends up playing 50 games, he wouldn't have gotten MVP anyway, not with the seasons that Jokic and SGA are having. Giannis is also pretty high up on this leaderboard. Of course, the Bucks ride or die with Giannis. However, there's so much, just like with Boston, there's so much power with Damian Lillard, Brooke Lopez, Bobby Portis, Chris Middleton, and that team, of course, they've been trying to figure out their flow defensively. They've had to go through a head coaching change. But Giannis has been playing at an MVP level since he started winning the MVP. I don't think his case supersedes that of the Joker or SGA or this season's Luka Doncic. The reason why I bring up Luka Doncic in this case, yes, everyone is going to love to say, oh, they're the eighth seed in the West. That's true. They're 26 and 23 through 49 games. After this blowout against Philadelphia, they'll probably be 27 and 23 through 50 games. He's second in scoring at 34.8 points per game behind Joel Embiid's 35.3, right? So the scoring title is at a different threshold when it comes to games played than the end of season award for MVP, right? Because you've you've already got that season qualifier that's in place all season long. And so you can find yourself ineligible pretty early on, but then if you play play in enough games you'll be eligible again. So it may come to a point where Embiid actually isn't eligible at all to win the scoring title, which would be a shame for him scoring as many points as he has, um, considering he's already won the last two scoring titles. But Luka has been scoring more and more and more points per game like crazy. 34.8 is not even first place. Just because he's in second doesn't mean we can't marvel at the fact that he's scoring at a clip that we don't see very often. On top of that, the Mavs are really effective in the clutch. And when you're really good in the clutch, it's a sign that you have, a strong one, a strong point guard, but two, a strong team that can execute in the trenches. The Mavs are 16-6 and six through their first 22 clutch games. That's the best win percentage in the NBA, 72.7%. And it ties the third best record in franchise history 
through 22 clutch games. It's on the levels of the 06-07 season where Dirk won MVP and the franchise, the Dallas Mavericks won about 64 games. And the 05-06 season where they went to the NBA Finals and lost to the Miami Heat in six. That aside, he also scored a league-wide season high 73 points. Let's not forget about that, okay? I don't care that it's the Atlanta Hawks because they beat Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, and Devin Booker and Kevin Durant didn't combine for 73. Like, on top of that, the Hawks actually beat the Suns. So it's not like the Hawks can't play defense. It's just that Luka shot the ball so well, he shot 25 of 33, just in case you forgot. 8 of 13 from 3, just in case you forgot. He shot at such an inefficient clip that it did not matter what you tried to do to him. He broke you down, and although I will put it on the Hawks, they should have double-teamed him earlier. That's when they had a bit more of a chance. Didn't matter. It was one of those games where it was at 148-143 at the end of regulation. We just saw a double overtime game on Sunday. Not even hit crack 140. All right, so the ball was just getting through the basket. Sometimes players are hot. Let's not use lack of defense as a reason that Lucas scored 73. He scored 73. All right? That was the most since Kobe Bryant in 2006. He leads the league with 58 points created per game entering the Monday games on February 5th. According to StatMuse, he also has the most points per game without accounting for free throws this season. So if you take all the free throws made per game away from the players, the top scoring players, who is at the very top anyway? it's still Luka Doncic. So he's getting his points from field goal attempts. And then on Sport Radar, I went to look at these numbers specifically. He has the third most total points via field goal attempts this season behind Giannis and SGA with 1,123 total points via field goal attempts. Because he missed seven or eight more games, depending on who you compare him to between Giannis and SGA, his points per game in this very specific category is higher. He also has the third most triple doubles this season with nine. Jokic and Sabonis lead with 15 and 14, respectively. Then, because we were talking about, oh, the Mavs are in the eighth spot, well, all right, let's say they move up to the top six. Here's some precedence for you. When Nikola Jokic won... MVP without Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. Jamal Murray was out with with the ACL tear. Michael Porter Jr. had missed considerable amount of time. This was in 2021. The Nuggets finished in sixth place in the West with their record being 48 and 34. Now, sixth in the West might require a little bit less, might require a little bit more. Just depends. It remains to be seen what record is necessary to be in the top six. But if the Mavs can be in the top six, where's the argument against Luka's season? Considering all of the injuries that the Mavericks have had, they have the most starting lineups utilized this season. 
And it's not even close who's in second. So for all the Mavs injuries that Luka has had to accommodate, including his own, he's having the season that he's having. I think it's disrespectful to have him at sixth. It's too early to be putting him that low. Especially because this is a narrative award. It's a narrative-driven award, right? Early in the, in every season where Luca's projected, he's the betting favorite to win MVP. There always seems to be some kind of reason a month or two months or three months down the line where they're like, ah, well, actually, maybe this guy's past him. Maybe this guy's past him. And it's like off of one event where he drops two spots. Doesn't make any sense. It happens year after year after year. It's not consistent. So what is consistent is that if you drop him so low this early, no one's going to think about him in the top three by the end of the season. So I'm making the case now to get it in people's heads. Luca's deserving of at least an MVP finalist spot. Like he should be in the top three without question. All right. Now that that debate is behind us, one thing I want to shine a light on are the All-Star Reserves, is the All-Star Reserves for the NBA. So let's take a look at the Eastern Conference Reserves first. So last episode, we talked about who the starters are going to be in the All-Star game. The reserves in the East are... Bam Adebayo, Paolo Bancaro, Jalen Brown, Jalen Brunson, Tyrese Maxey, Donovan Mitchell, and Julius Randle. Now, Julius Randle is still dealing with the separated shoulder, so if somebody has to fill in for him, such as a Trey Young, the commissioner, Adam Silver, will make that decision. And the same thing will apply to the west side if somebody goes down with an injury. On the West side, the Western Conference reserves are Devin Booker, Stephen Curry, Anthony Davis, Anthony Edwards, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Carl Anthony Towns. So congratulations to all those guys. It's East, it's East versus West. For the first time in a little while, we've been doing the blacktop pickup style for a few years. This is part of the change that was negotiated. So it'll be, I guess, interesting to see how this will play out because previous East-West matchups didn't really turn into anything. You, you just The players have to want to make it exciting all game long and not just the fourth quarter not have it be a layup line actually play some defense yeah don't get hurt but put a little more more effort into it we'll see what happens when that game comes about that will be sunday february 18th one week after the super bowl at 8 p.m eastern on tnt so mark your calendars everybody all right that's it for this segment we got Another thing to talk about, because we haven't recapped anything that's gone on in the past week for the three teams that we cover. We're going to transition to the Week 15 recap for the Mavs, Pelicans, and the Thunder and take a look at some upcoming matchups. The 
first of these three teams that we're going to cover, of course, the Mavericks. They had a magical comeback versus Orlando last Monday, January 29th at home. The Mavs were down 77-61 to at halftime and then outscored Orlando 35-12 to in the third quarter. Now, I'm going to give you some context here. Orlando this season, entering that game, shot 46.7% from the floor, which was 21st in the NBA, but only 34% from three, which was last in the NBA. Orlando in the first half, however, of this game, 65.1% from the floor, 12 of 22, which is 54.5% from three. So the Mavs needed to play some defense, right? So they did. In the third quarter, Orlando only shot four of 20. Yes, 4 of 20. That's 20% from the floor. From 2, they shot 2 of 14, 14.3%. And then from 3, they shot 2 of 6, which is 33.3%. So energy, effort, and defense changed the game for the Mavs. It was their 16th clutch win, and they've now won 6 of their last 7 clutch games. Luka Doncic had an outstanding night with... 45 points on 12 of 23 shooting, 52.2%. 18 of 21 from the free throw line, 85.7%. Nine rebounds, 15 assists, and two steals. This is only his second game, not only this season, but in his career with 45 points and 15 assists. Now, as I'm recording this, I thought that was wrong the first time I said it. So I had to look again, even though I'd already researched this, and just triple check. He's only done this twice, 45 and 15. The last game this happened was Christmas at Phoenix. And then his 21 free throw attempts is his season high, and it's tied for the third most in his career. His 18 free throws made is a season high, and it ties the most in his career. Along with Luka Doncic, three other Mavs scored 20 or more points in that game. So, you have four Mavericks with 20-plus points in the first game this season. The Mavericks, all time, are 28-5, and when four or more players score 20-plus points. It doesn't happen very often, all right? So it's an exciting thing. Let's break down the three scores that got to 20. Tim Hardaway Jr. had the next most at 36 points on 11 of 17 shooting, 64.7%. 5 of 9 from 3, 55.6%. 9 of 11 from the free throw line, 81.8%. And then grabbed 8 rebounds. This was his sixth game this season with 30-plus points, and normally he comes off the bench and is a productive scorer. However, his last three 30-point games have come when he was in the starting lineup. Now, Derek Lively II had 20 points, the rookie, 8 of 9 shooting, 88.9% from the floor, 11 rebounds, he also had a steal and a block. His 20 points and 11 rebounds were the eighth double-double this season, and that's third among rookies entering this Monday, February 5th. 
it is his third 20-point double-double this season. So all, oh, I'm going to get to that in a second. All of his 20-point games have been double-doubles. So he now has the second most 20-point double-doubles this season behind Victor Wembanyama's 14. That's a lot, all right? And speaking of three games with 20 points, he now has tied Dirk Nowitzki and five others in the Mavericks franchise for 15th most 20-point games by a Mavs rookie with three games of 20. So he's just starting to crack up the leaderboard. The more that he plays, he did not play in Philadelphia, and he won't play in Brooklyn. But let's say he gets another couple of games at 20 points, right? He's going to climb up that leaderboard like Jaden Hardy did last year and finish tied with Jason Kidd. So it's promising to see that from such a young rookie, even when he broke his nose in this game, all right? But he stayed in there, he gutted it out, they got the win. That block that I mentioned was his 50th block this season. That's the third most among rookies behind Victor Victor Wimbanyama and Chet Holmgren. The rookie from last year that I mentioned, Jaden Hardy, second season this year, scored a season-high 20 points on 8 of 9 shooting as well, 88.9%, 4 of 5, 80% from 3. 7 assists, 1 steal, and one block. All right, so a little bit more of a breakdown for Jaden Hardy. Hardy and Doncic combined for 22 of the 27 Mavericks assists. All right, so outside of those two, everyone else had five. They were the facilitators of this offense. Hardy and Lively the second recorded the only two Mavs blocks in this game. His 88.9% field goal percentage is a career best on three or more field goal attempts. Not just, not just nine field goal attempts or eight field goal attempts, three field goal attempts. And then his 80% three-point percentage ties his career high on five or more three-point field goal attempts. All right, so lots of promise from a team that came back. Orlando's a good team now. They're big, they're tall. Having Derek Lively helped a lot. However, the Mavs could not keep that going against Milwaukee. So Saturday, February 5th versus the Bucks. This is the second game that I'm going to break down, mainly because the Minnesota game, you had no Luka, no Kyrie, no Derek Lively the second. It's very difficult to diagnose a team when you don't have three of your best players. But Saturday, February 5th versus the Bucks. In the first quarter, the Mavs outscored the Bucks. 44 to 20, 44 to 20, all right? 44 first quarter points ties the third most in any quarter this season. It ties the most in any first quarter this season. But for the rest of the game, the Bucks outscored the Mavericks 40 to 21 in the second quarter and 69 to 52 in the second half. So that 24 point lead after the first quarter is the largest lead through one quarter given up by Dallas in the play-by-play era. That's since 1996-97. It ties the third largest in the NBA since 96-97. So this was a blown lead of epic proportions. Obviously, on the other side, you had Giannis Antetokounmpo dropping 48 and Dame Lillard with 30. 
But when you're when you have a lead that big on a team that special, you gotta find a way to keep it. So the Mavs had energy issues defensively, right? Then there were some foul calls that should have gone the Mavericks way. It did not. Even though the free throw shooting was somewhat even. But they also shot poorly from three from the second through the fourth quarter. And this is starting to become a slight trend. In the first quarter, the Mavs shot 9 of 14 from three, which is 64.3%. But from the second through the fourth quarters, they shot 7 of 25, which was 28%. And this issue where you're hot in the first and then you want to keep it going and it's suddenly ice cold and you can't ever get it back. The same thing happened in the Phoenix game and it frustrated Lucas so much that we went through all that stuff we went through before that 73 point game in Atlanta. On top of that, what made it worse was that the Mavs are one of the best teams at hanging onto the ball. They hold onto the ball very well. They don't turn it over very much, but in this game it was impossible, right? They had a season high 21 turnovers Luka tied his career high with nine of those turnovers. And then they allowed 25 Milwaukee points off of those 21 Dallas turnovers. That was the third most this season by Mavericks opponent. So lots of issues to clean up, which as of right now, they did because I can update you that the Mavericks beat the 76ers. Obviously, they did not have Joel Embiid, but Tyrese Maxey did play in that game. That final score was 118 to 102. So they have now played Philly. They're going to play Brooklyn and the New York Knicks throughout this week. We'll go through that schedule at the end of this segment. A positive note I want to leave this game and the Mavs off of. Luka's 39th career 40-plus point game came in this Bucks game. And that was his 10th this season. It's now his 27th double-double of the season. And to get that double-double, he had 40 points and 11 assists. This is also the fifth game this season with 40 points and 10 assists. So, lots of production from Luka. Just frustrating that it didn't come out with a win. This time around, though, they're going to try to hopefully win three straight up in that Northeast area. It's going to be difficult with New York looming and their defense, but the Mavs are already off to a good start by taking care of Philadelphia. Let's look at the Pelicans of New Orleans. Currently, they're bludgeoning Toronto, so I'm not even going to look at that right now. But I want to talk about their game on Friday, February 2nd against San Antonio. And yes, I know San Antonio is not good. However, the Pelicans have been awful in close games. In games decided by three or less, they were 0-6 entering this game. They were down 65-58 at halftime, and somehow that's what caused me to start watching it. But they ended up winning by one, something they haven't done all season. All right, so this is their first win this year in games decided by three points or less. Right, previously 0-6, now 1-6. So the final minute of the fourth quarter was a back-and-forth affair, right? Wemby blocks Zion's layup, CJ McCollum blocks Trey Jones, gets his own rebound, and then CJ fouls Trey Jones. So then Jones hits the two free throws, 
and they're up by the Spurs are up by three. Zion dunks off of a Brandon Ingram assist. So now the game is 113-112. Trey Jones takes the ball, misses a layup with 12 seconds to go. Wimby grabs the offensive rebound. And as he's going up, Brandon Ingram comes out of nowhere and smacks that ball into the glass right into Jose Alvarado's hands, who passes it up to Zion Williamson on the break for a layup that's high off the glass when he's got three other Spurs around him. Wimby coming from, from his backside, trying to block the ball, doesn't get to the ball in time, and it's suddenly 114-113 New Orleans. Right? That epic stretch of the final minute alone, whoo, man, that was a doozy. All right, so then, of course, out of the timeout, San Antonio gives the ball to Devin Vassell, who'd been shooting well all game long. He misses the three-pointer out of the timeout, and that's the end of the game. Whew, okay, so let's look at some numbers. The Pelicans scored 24 points off of 18 San Antonio turnovers, which is now tied for the fifth most this season, the 24 points off turnovers. Zion Williamson had a great game against the Spurs, 33 points on 12 of 21 shooting, 57.1%. From the free throw line, although his percentage is kind of low, he's been getting to the free throw line a little bit more. He's shooting 9 of 13 in this game, 69.2%. He recorded eight rebounds, four assists, one steal, and one block. So he was ultra aggressive in this game and utilized his abilities to their fullest capability. This was his sixth 30-point game this season. I expect to see more for the Pelicans to have success, although this offense has been structured in a way where they don't have to rely on him as much. But when you need him, you have to use him. So to know that that's there is good even against the Spurs team that had been that it had the lead for a while. On top of that, New Orleans was still sharing the ball. So in this game they had 29 assists and this season they are 16 and 3 when they have 29 or more assists in a game. The fact that they have 19 games played with 29 assists is remarkable. But For Zion to be that aggressive and for the ball to still be moving means that, and of course, with the nature of this win, being a close win, the Pelicans are now learning how to win in multiple situations, and you're going to need that for the playoffs. Speaking of a team in the playoffs, let's look at Oklahoma City, because what I saw was one of the most improbable things I had seen in a while. They pulled off an epic comeback and stunned Toronto in double overtime. Now, I'll, I'll tell you how we got there, okay? So this is Sunday, February 4th. J-Dub is still unavailable with his, with his ankle injury. OKC was down by as many as 23 in the second half. But they came back with a strong surge in the third quarter. This was the largest comeback for OKC this season, and it ties the fifth Largest comeback in Thunder history since 2008-2009. Their three-point shooting in the first half versus the rest of the game tells a lot of this story because they shot heavily from three. In the first half, they shot seven of 25, which was 28% from three. And then for the rest of the game, they shot 16 of 38, which is 42%. Right, that's closer to their average than the 28% that they were shooting in that first half. And what contributed to them having 
such issues offensively. Overall, they shot 23 of 63, 36.5% from three. Both the three-point field goals made and attempted were season highs, and their 23 threes made ties a franchise record since three-point field goals made was a stat that was tracked in 1979-1980. And then in the post-game press conference, I listened to Coach Mark Dagnall talk about how Toronto was throwing different defensive looks at Shea, at SGA, and it threw off the Thunder's rhythm, right? But the composure of the team to kind of work through how to break down that defense, the patience amongst the, the coaching staff and the players allowed them to really break through in the second half. And so it led, of course, this was a double overtime game, so these numbers are going to be slightly inflated. However, the Thunder had five players with 20-plus points. And what's significant about that is that three of the last five instances were by OKC. The first OKC instance was December 6th, 2019. The second was last season when OKC bludgeoned Boston with 150 points. I'm sure everyone remembered hearing about that game if they didn't watch it. The other two instances came from Boston this season and Dallas last season. Since 1993-1994, only six instances have been recorded, with the first of those being March 2004 by Atlanta. So between 2004 and 2019, there hadn't been any until OKC ripped off three out of five. All time, NBA teams are 50 and 7 with five 20 point scores, and no team in the NBA has ever had six. So, a lot of significance there with how the Thunder operate. That's they're an outstanding team, right? They're one of the best in the West for a reason. A 23 point lead was nothing for them. Went to double overtime, won the game. Of course, it was at home, so they had that raucous thunder crowd behind them. It was an outstanding game to watch from second half on. So that's fun to look at, and we're going to take a look at what the Thunder do, of course, as well as the Mavs and the Pelicans do throughout the week in the next episode. Speaking of the next episode, this is a big week in the NBA because the NBA trade deadline is coming Thursday, February 8th at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central. And of the three teams that are that are in this podcast, the Mavs, the Pels, the Thunder, the Mavs look like they're going to make the most moves according to insiders and reporters such as Mark Stein, Tim McMahon, Shams Charania, Adrian Wojnarowski. There's talk of Kyle Kuzma of Washington, P.J. PJ Washington from Charlotte. Today, I had, I had seen a report about Bobby Portis in Milwaukee. So there's going to be some movement, most likely, from the Mavericks, and we're going to have to take a look at the entire NBA landscape, what, all the transactions that go down. If the Pelicans or the Thunder make a move, we're going to find out. If they don't, if they stand pat, we're going to find out. And then we'll see the outlook for, we'll take a look at the outlook for those three teams with their new rosters, if they are new, for the rest of the season. Because we're coming up close on the All-Star break. Now, one more thing before I get to the upcoming schedules. 
is I want to mention now that it's a done deal that Adam Silver got a new deal to remain the NBA commissioner. All right. So through this associated press report by Tim Reynolds from January 30th of this year, it's mainly talking about how Adam Silver, he's revered by the players. He's revered by the owners. He's been lifting the revenue of the league for the last decade since he took over for his mentor, the late David Stern. He's gone through a lot of lots of highs and lows with all the big decisions that he has made. Obviously, the recent criticism of the 65-game rule is one thing, but for the most part, I think Adam Silver has done a fantastic job with this league and has made has made it so marketable. And the growth of this league is not one to scoff at. I think he's one of the best commissioners, if not the best commissioner in all of U.S. pro sports. So now that we know that he's going to be the commissioner through the end of the decade, he's going to be a part of the next CBA negotiation. Not the one that just passed, obviously, but the one that will end at near the end of the decade. And he's going to have his hands all over the new TV rights deals that are going to affect how you see games. Because especially with Amazon investing into Diamond Sports Group and the Valley Sports Networks, in a couple years' time, the entire RSN model is probably going to change. So what we're used to with blackouts and restrictions and all that might be a thing of the past. But that... Again, we won't know about that until that goes through the bankruptcy court. That's just on the local side. That doesn't even account for all of the local RSNs that exist in the United States and in Toronto. But we're going to really see, okay, what's the value of these deals and how is that going to affect the salary caps and player contracts and so on and so forth. So that is just something to look at for the long term, right? Short term because that, that TV deal will expire in about a year. But definitely for the long term, since Adam Silver is here and the players still love him. So he's sticking around. All right, now let's take a look at the upcoming schedule for national television and local television. On Tuesday, February 6th, the Mavs will play the Nets at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central. This game will be on TNT. I, believe, I think this game is actually going to be blacked out in the Dallas market. So if you're in Dallas, you can watch it on Valley Sports Southwest. And then following that game, the Bucks and the Suns will play at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on TNT. Wednesday, February 7th, the Warriors and the 76ers will play at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on ESPN. And then the Pelicans and the Clippers will play at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on ESPN, but also Bally Sports New Orleans and Bally Sports SoCal. And so I will be producing graphics for that Mavs game against Brooklyn, and then I'll be operating, the at least for the studio shows, the pregame and halftime and postgame. And then I'll be operating the machine for that Pelicans game against the Clippers. So if you're in those markets, take a look at those, all right? Thursday, February 8th, the Mavs will play the Knicks at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on TNT, followed by the Nuggets and the Lakers at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on TNT. Saturday, February 10th, the Suns and the Warriors 
and the Warriors will play at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central on ABC, Saturday night, primetime. And then Sunday, February 11th, on Super Bowl Sunday, the Celtics and the Heat will play at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central on ABC. Now, for the local schedule, these games have already happened. Monday, February 5th, the Mavs have just played the Sixers. They they routed them. That game is over. The Raptors and the Pelicans are almost finished as well. They just played Monday, February 5th. Now, Tuesday, February 6th, the Thunder will play the Jazz at 9-8 Central on Valley Sports Oklahoma and K-Jazz. February 9th, Friday, February 9th, will be the Pelicans and the Lakers at 10-30, Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and Spectrum Sportsnet. Then Saturday, February 10th, the Thunder will play the Mavs at 3-2 Central on Valley Sports Oklahoma and Valley Sports Southwest. And then the Pelicans will play the Trailblazers at 10-9 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans and Root Sports. And then on Super Bowl Sunday, the Sacramento Kings will play the Oklahoma City Thunder at 3-2 Central on NBC Sports California and Valley Sports Oklahoma. Now, I don't want to create a conspiracy theory that because OKC lost to Detroit and then the Lions ended up losing last Sunday that, you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder are playing the Sacramento Kings who were from Kansas City. They played in Kansas City at one point, the Kansas City Kings. I will not do that. No, I will not. All right, that, that's it for the schedule. Okay, so of course, the next episode will come out later this week after the NBA trade deadline is all but finished. So look out for that episode by about most likely Friday. So thanks again for watching and for listening all the way up until this point. Again, I appreciate it every single time it continually goes up episode by episode. So I know you're you're out there and you're and you're looking and you're watching, you're listening, you're consuming this as much as possible. I appreciate every single one of you. All right. So be back for the next one. That does it for me. This has been the control room. I'm your host. Esra Johannes, signing off.